And welcome to the 28th episode of the very unofficial AICP Study Guide Podcast. I am Jonathan Miller, and thank you so much for joining. So, we're back, finally. Uh, Yes, the break was a little longer than I had initially expected, so apologies for that. But, you know, life is what happens when you're busy making plans, so yeah. Anyways, let's get all caught up with the deadlines before we jump into the main content. Remember, with the last round of the exam, uh, the APA bifurcated the process, uh, which means you have different deadlines depending on if you plan on submitting the experience essays or not. So, first things first, the application window in general opened up on June 1st, but don't worry, you still have plenty of time. The window will stay open until October 4th, but that is just for the exam portion. If you plan on submitting the experience essays as well, you will have to have your application submitted by July 5th. So you still have about two weeks or so, but trust me, the time does go by quickly, so you might as well get a jump on the process now. Now, on to the main topic of today, the city efficient movement. Uh, Way back when we last left off, we talked about City Beautiful. And how does that tie into all of this? Well, if you remember, City Beautiful definitely had some critics. And mostly, this revolved around criticisms that it didn't actually address any social issues directly. That it was too expensive and only focused on aesthetics. Basically, that it was inefficient. Uh, At the same time, there was a general push towards being more efficient with materials, uh, things like sustainable tree farming, for example. And it was these two thoughts that ended up combining to give us the city-efficient movement. So the first thing to know and remember is that the city efficient movement did not start with planning or even by a planner. It started with a principle called scientific management. Now this was outlined by a guy named Frederick Winslow Taylor, in fact it is actually sometimes called Taylorism, uh, in his 1911 book aptly named The Principles of Scientific Management. Uh, It really all began when, according to Taylor, While there was this movement to conserve materials, it was wasted human effort that wasn't really being considered at all. And keep in mind, this is after Roosevelt had started with all of his conservation efforts in the Progressive Era, which was between 1901 and 1909. So the ultimate theme of this book was that emphasis should be placed on training and the system of management that is opposed to finding the right person and that the main goal of each system, i.e. management system in each organization, should be to develop first-class people. Now remember, Taylor wasn't a planner. In fact, he was a mechanical engineer who got his start working as an apprentice machinist. He worked up through the ranks at a place called Midvale Steelworks in Philadelphia. Uh, He started out as a laborer, uh, journeyman, foreman, all the way to research director and chief engineer. You know, the kind of work progressions that uh, you would never see today. Uh, It was this progression, really, that formed the foundation of his scientific management principles. 
So Taylor noticed that a lot of the workmen in the factories were deliberately working a little slow. Uh, and there was actually a term for this, apparently. It was called soldiering for some reason that I don't know. Uh, anyways, he kept tabs on those kinds of inefficiencies throughout his whole career. So after he was done working in the factory, he ended up working a little bit longer as an engineering consultant. And after getting a boatload of money for some machining patent thing that he came up with uh, and butting heads with a bunch of managers along the way, he ended up calling it quits to consulting and then started devoting time and energy to developing his ideas on this scientific management thing. And in 1911, we get his book, The Principles of Scientific Management. But what exactly is scientific management? Well, Taylor summed it up in four principles. One, the development of a specific set of logical rules and procedures for working. So instead of using the rule of thumb method, which was really common at the time, the idea is that there is one true best way to complete any given job or task, and that should be discovered uh, and done the same way every time. Two, employees were assigned work roles and duties based on their skill sets and what they were well suited for, not what they chose. The concept here is that you know, the big old burly guys should do the heavy lifting manual labor and smart people shouldn't do mundane work, etc., etc. Not that the two can't coexist, just uh, you end up doing what you are naturally better at. Three, full cooperation between management and staff. Uh, this is basically just to make sure that the first principle is actually being followed, of course. And four, an equal division of work and responsibility between management and the workers. I guess that one apparently never really caught on because you don't see that very much. Uh, what's the saying again? Work will gravitate toward where it gets done, uh, i.e. shit rolls downhill. Anyways, the scientific management system was developed with engineers and factories in mind, but he also noted that the principles would translate to just about anything even government. Now that all began when in 1911, a friend of Taylor's, uh, Morris Llewellyn Cook, uh, took the job as the city of Philadelphia's director of public works. Right out of the gate, Cook said, quote, that these principles enunciated by Taylor can be applied to city work as they have been applied to scores of different kinds of industrial work is to me only too obvious." Unquote. In 1913 though, over New York City, an engineer who was a big advocate of Taylor's scientific management uh, scheme, for lack of a better word I guess, by the name of Ernest P. Goodrich, joined forces with a planner named George Burdett Ford, and together they started the first private planning firm in the U.S the Technical Advisory Corporation. Now, together, they utilized this efficiency model uh, approach in urban planning. They used this approach when George Ford provided technical guidance on the first zoning ordinance, for example. That would be New York's in 1916. They used the approach in the first comprehensive plan, which was in Cincinnati in 1925. And their biggest contribution to the city of Fishman movement, though, 
was probably employing a guy named Harland Bartholomew. Now, we will get to Harland's contributions here in a second, but who is Harland? Harland actually started as an engineer, uh, and he began working with Goodrich actually a year before Goodrich started the Technical Advisory Corporation in 1913. So Bartholomew got a heavy dose of efficiency principles before he ended up leaving in 1914. Now, why did he leave? Well, the Newark, New Jersey Planning Commission actually retained Mr. Bartholomew as a full-time city planner. In fact, he was the first full-time public sector city planner in the U.S. A year later, he moved on again to become the first city planner in St. Louis, and today we call that job hopping, and it is generally frowned upon. That said, though, that was his last stop. He stayed there until 1950, although he did have a little side private planning gig uh, going on. Uh, and he was also one of the founding members of the APA in 1917 as well. Uh, it was not all roses for Bartholomew, though. His city-efficient tendencies has come under a lot of fire. You see, the city efficient movement, while sought to revitalize cities and neighborhoods uh, efficiently, and unfortunately, efficiently didn't mean fairly or humanely. So in St. Louis, for example, Bartholomew sort of created urban renewal and slum clearance before urban renewal and slum clearance were even a thing. Uh, he used a method called cost accounting to identify neighborhoods that cost more in terms of city services compared to the taxes that they had generated. These obsolete neighborhoods, as Bartholomew called them, way to go, would be cleared through eminent domain, uh, a process that actually created the space for the Gateway Arch National Park. Uh, he was even more brash though, uh, stating that a goal was to keep blacks out of, quote, fine residential districts, so yes, he was an asshole. Uh, he was also a huge advocate for single-use slash Euclidean zoning and planning around the automobile. So yeah, there is that too. Not exactly a ringing endorsement for the city-efficient movement. Well, that was interesting. City-efficient, ladies and gentlemen, yay. Uh, to recap, City Efficient started back in the Progressive Era in the early 1900s when a guy named Frederick Winslow Taylor, an engineer, noticed that there was a big emphasis on becoming more efficient, but that it wasn't translating to labor. So he wrote a book in 1911 called The Principles of Scientific Management and spent a ton of time promoting this idea, which would eventually become the backbone of the City Efficient movement. A big proponent of his, an engineer, notice a theme, named Ernest Goodrich, teamed up with a planner named George Ford, and together they started up a private planning firm, the first private planning firm, the Technical Advisory Corporation. That ended up utilizing city-efficient principles in their work. That trickled down to an early employee of theirs, Harland Bartholomew, who left in 1914 to become the first full-time public sector planner in Newark, New Jersey, 
Uh, he job hopped after a year there to St. Louis and became their first planner. And he used city efficient principles to essentially justify urban renewal, slum clearance, and the general displacement of about 70,000 residents of black neighborhoods. Well, thanks again for joining me. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at the very unofficial AICP guide at gmail.com. And I will do my best to help out if I can. Uh, I got to admit, it's good to be back at it. Uh, I am super crunched for time, but I do love putting these things together. So hopefully you find them at least somewhat useful or interesting. Congratulations to anyone who passed the last round and decided to stick around for some fun little anecdotal stories. Uh, and for those of you who are just joining for this new round, just enjoy the ride. Uh, if you want to play along this week for our weekly question thing, uh, the question is going to be, who were the two founders of the first private urban planning consulting firm? Anyways, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use for podcasts, and feel free to sign up on the show's website so you can follow along with future episodes, help prepare for the exam, and supplement all of your other study regimens, and share this out with any planners you know. Uh, and don't forget to leave a review either. Tune in again next week. Uh, we'll hit a few random tidbits that mostly revolve around states and how they started to take planning more seriously by making the various things mandatory. Thanks again, everyone. Till next time.